Romans chapter 1. We're going to embark on a new journey today, Lord willing. It's always exciting and interesting to see where it's going to go. You know, Romans is one of those interesting books that we could uh, spend a lot of time in, going from beginning to end. It's also a book that lends itself to various divisions, and we could preach on certain sections of it. And So I'm just kind of leaving it open right now. We'll see. If I get bogged down in the middle and can't go any further, then we'll just go on to something else. But right now, the plan is we're going to look at Romans for a while. And uh, we're going to start today in chapter 1, verse number 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, we pray now as we look at these opening words of the Apostle Paul in this letter that you'll guide us, that you'll fill me, Lord, with your Spirit, and that you'll help us now in these minutes that remain uh, to get something here that'll help us. Uh, Speak to us, Lord. Teach us, uh, even as we look at these uh, greetings, which would seem to be, you know, pretty common. And yet, Lord, there's so much truth here. So guide us and direct us, we pray. And I pray if there are those here today who need something specific from this passage, that you'll speak directly to them. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Romans is one of the most important books in the New Testament. I have always wanted to preach to the book of Romans, and I have never done it, primarily because... Uh, I'm intimidated by it. Romans is an important book. It's a big book. It's certainly the magnum opus of the Apostle Paul. I mean, this is certainly, I think, his greatest work. I have heard it said that if you were to try to uh, view the, uh, the books of the New Testament as mountain peaks, Romans would be the towering one above them all. Uh, because it certainly uh, is, a, is it's the most clear and complete explanation, I think, that Paul ever developed of the gospel. So I think every Christian ought to read the book of Romans. And once you're done reading the book of Romans, you ought to start over again and read the book of Romans. I think every Christian should read it. Oftentimes people will ask me that have just been saved, where should I start reading? Well, I always tell them you should start reading in John. I do think that's the first place that a new Christian ought to read. But then right after that, the book of Romans. You ought to be in that. There's other good ones. Philippians is a good one, too. But uh, John, Romans, you absolutely ought to read those if you're a new believer. Well, we're going to start right at the beginning, as Mary Poppins would say. Was it Mary Poppins that said, start at the very beginning? Who was that? That was somebody. Maybe it was Maria Von Trapp said that. We'll start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. And so right here at the beginning, we're seeing Paul's greeting to the Romans. And it might not seem like we're going to get anything out of a greeting. That's really all this is. This is Paul's greeting to the Roman church. But I think there's, there's a lot here. If, if you were going to start a letter to somebody or some group of people in a far-off city, how would you start it? If you're like me, you would probably start it off something like, dear friends in a far-off city. Isn't that basically what you do? And, and I would have expected that Paul, he's writing to people in Rome that he doesn't know, but he knows they're Christians. You would have thought he'd said something like, dear brothers and sisters in Rome, or dear Roman church, or something like that. But 
Paul is far more eloquent than that. The first seven verses comprise his greeting, his opening uh, salutation to the Romans. And like all of the letter, even this is just dripping with truth. There's so much that we can learn, even from his saying hello, which is basically what he's doing here. I want you to notice he tells us three things. At least we're going to divide it up into three different ways of looking at it. He tells us a little bit about himself, who the author of the letter is. He tells us a little bit about his purpose for writing, why he's writing. And he tells us some very interesting things about who he's writing to, his readership. And so we're going to look at those three. We're going to divide our sermon up in those three ways today. First of all, who, who, who is the author of the letter? Somebody tell me what is the first word of the book? Paul. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The author of the letter is the apostle Paul. Now, this is uh, the claim contained in the very first word of the letter, and it's also a claim that is undisputed even by the most liberal scholars. You know, there are always those who try to say, well, you know what, this is an issue, but, but Paul didn't really write. You don't get that about Romans. Even the most liberal of Unbelievers has to admit that the Apostle Paul certainly was the author of this letter. He wrote the letter in approximately 57 A.D., and that would put it right in the middle of his third missionary journey. He wrote from Corinth. We believe this, that to be true because there's evidence within the letter that tells us this. Evidence would include the fact that he referenced somebody named Phoebe. Phoebe was a deaconess in a church in Sencrea. Sancria was the easternmost seaport of Corinth. If you look over at, uh, uh, where is it, chapter 16, flip, flip back to chapter 16 and look at verse number 1, the very last chapter. He says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant, a deaconess of the church in Sancria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. And so we know that Sancria had a church. We know that Phoebe was a deaconess in that church. And we believe that, that Phoebe was the one who carried this letter from Paul to Rome. We, we know something else about Sancria, by the way. We also know that Sancria had a barber shop. Did you know that? Because Sancria is the place, according to Acts chapter uh, 18, I think it is, where Paul got his hair cut in Sancria. Uh, then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And he had his hair cut off at Sancria, for he had taken a vow. So, Paul, the one who was formerly called Saul, the one who had been a hater of Christ, the one who had been complicit in the murder of Christianity's first martyr, Stephen, the one who had campaigned viciously against the church, murdered people, had people thrown into prison, responsible for the imprisonment of many, the one who had then met Jesus on the Damascus Road and been miraculously saved. The one who from that moment on was changed forever. Paul. He's the one who wrote this letter. And he wrote it about 57 A.D. from Corinth. He handed it to Phoebe, a deaconess, and she carried it to Rome and delivered it there. Now, Paul, in introducing himself to these people in Rome, he, he doesn't introduce himself like we might expect. We might expect him to present a bunch of credentials if you're trying to make yourself, uh, get people to listen to you that don't know you, you're going to usually present some credentials to them. And he had some that he could have presented, right? He might have mentioned his elite Jewish lineage. I mean, he was quite elite in that way. He might have described his Ivy League education. There are few people ever who have lived who had more education than the Apostle Paul. He might have mentioned his inclusion in the Pharisaic sect. 
which was, you know, that was an elite group of people. You know, all these things he might have said, but he didn't do any of that. Instead, when he introduces himself to these people, he introduces himself in three ways. And the first one is there in verse number one. He says, Paul, a bondservant, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a word we've examined before. I was leafing through my trusty old Thompson Chain Reference Bible. And if I could have only one Bible on the face of the earth, it would be my Thompson Chain Reference King James Bible. That's, that's the one that I would carry with me anywhere. I was looking through it, and I noticed something I had scribbled in the margin uh, on this verse. It said, there are five words in Greek that are translated servant. And this one, doulos, is the lowest, most menial of the five. A simple synonym of the word would be slave. Paul was saying that he was a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word doulos simply means one who is subject to the will and wholly at the disposal of another. And from the moment the Apostle Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he considered himself subject to the will of and wholly at the disposal of Jesus Christ. He considered himself a bondservant, a slave of the Savior. We saw the same mindset in James. Remember when we studied James? James said the same thing as he opened his letter. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on this, said Paul had met Jesus Christ, and from that moment he was never his own man. He was a servant of the Lord. You know, that's something we, we all ought to, it ought to sink down into all of our ears. We all ought to think about that qualification that Paul threw out there, because it ought to apply to all of us. But I think especially it ought to apply to those who are in roles of service or leadership in a local church. Pastors, elders, deacons, deaconesses. Too often I think we find ourselves in a role such as that. And we get the idea of service gets eclipsed sometime by some idea of uh, honor or title or something. And there's no doubt that there is honor due to those who serve Christ faithfully. And there's no doubt that there is reward both here and to come in heaven. But we are first and foremost servants. We must be first and foremost servants, slaves of the Savior. Do you aspire to that? Is that your, your highest desire, to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, Paul did. Think about that. He could have said anything. He could have presented anything to this group of people in Rome. And what did he start with? What was the top of his resume? I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we ought to think about that. It's not the only time he did this either. He referred to himself this way often. Galatians chapter 1, Do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. To Titus, he said, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And, and other times as well. So he was a slave. The second way he introduced himself is also in that first verse. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. An apostle. When I was a teenager in this church, and that was a long, 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 long time ago, CB radios were big. Everybody remember CB radios? We all had CB radios in our car. And you know, nowadays people go down the road with their heads down, threatening everybody in the world as they text going down the road. Uh, we went down the road holding a microphone and talking to people on our CB radio. Same basic thing, but at least our heads were up. We could see where we were going. Nonetheless, if you had a CB radio... You would speak on your CB radio, and anybody within range could hear what you were saying. So if you wanted to talk to somebody, you had to be able to identify them some way. And so people had handles. Remember handles? I had a handle. It will forever remain unknown to you. But I, 
I had a handle. And the pastor of this church at the time also had a handle. And his handle was the apostle. And so you'd see him go driving by on the road and you'd pass him in a car or something and you'd pick up your mic and you'd say, hey, how about that apostle? And the next thing you know, we'd be talking back and forth to each other. Actually, I will be glad to share my handle with somebody, but it will cost money. Anybody? <laughs> anybody wants to know my handle, you're going to have to pay for that. Paul chose apostle as his second self-designation. So what does that mean? What, what is an apostle? Well, the simple definition of the word is, quote, one called and sent with delegated authority. One called and sent with delegated authority. Now, the word's used a couple of ways in Scripture. It's used in kind of a generic way. Uh, anybody who is called and sent with delegated authority of anybody uh, could be called an, author- uh, an apostle. Uh, we could even use it that way today. But it's also used in a very specific way in the New Testament of a very specific group of men, the twelve And then the Apostle Paul was also added to that when he was saved in the Damascus Road. This specific group of men were were chosen by Jesus Christ. They were men who had seen Christ personally. Uh, Paul, when he was defending his apostleship, said that. He said, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Because that was the evidence that he was in that group. And these men were tasked with the formation of the church and the completion of the Scriptures. And so whereas the generic use of the term might fit today, that part doesn't, because once that group of men passed from the scene, once the word of God was complete, once the church was formed, uh, that, that, the need for that group of men uh, passed away. And there are no apostles of that ilk today. That's also, by the way, why we don't believe in the gift of tongues or uh, the gifts of healing or the gifts of miracles We don't believe those are for today because they are clearly described in the Bible as signs of an apostle. They are clearly described as something that was meant to authenticate the ministry of that specific group of people when they would come into a town and they had to, they had to authenticate themselves. Why should you, why should you listen to me? They were able to uh, do these things. Second Corinthians chapter 12, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And so Paul here calls himself this. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. And so here he is saying something that sets him apart. He is listing a qualification here, isn't he? You know, he calls himself a slave, and that doesn't necessarily set him up as somebody that they might want to listen to. Uh, It shows his heart. It shows his humility. It shows all kinds of good things. But now he is showing his authority. And now he is saying, I'm called by God, and I'm given the authority that God has only given to a select group of men. What he was basically saying was, uh, what I say, you need to listen to. You need to listen to. You need to accept the words that are written, not as his opinions and personal ideas, but as the inspired word of God. Because that's what it was. He was an apostle. From time to time, I hear somebody say, you know what? I will accept the words in my Bible that are in red, but the rest of them, well, those are just the words of men. You ever heard anybody say that? I hear that from time to time. You know what that is? It's hogwash. It's simply not true. It's, it's a wrong way to look at Scripture. Somewhere along the line, somewhere down, down the road in church history, and I don't know when it first happened. I, we could look this up and figure it out. But somebody decided to print a version of the Bible and make the words that Jesus Christ actually spoke be printed in red. It's not inspired of God. It's just what somebody decided to do with a particular version of the Bible. And it was popular, and therefore now we have red-letter versions of the Bible. But it is not true 
that only those words are inspired of God. The words of an apostle are are just as inspired of God. That's why Paul could say that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's why Peter could remind his readers that above all, you must realize no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. When Paul spoke as an apostle, it was every bit as inspired by God as when Jesus spoke. That's that's important for us to recognize. Don't ever think that you can just discard things that the apostle said or other parts of the Bible that are not in red. It's all the Word of God. We believe it all. We accept it all. So Paul's starting off his letter here to this church he's never visited and to these believers, most of whom he has never met, by reminding them that he has the authority to speak to them and by reminding them that he was sent with the authority of the Savior to speak to them. One other thing he says in describing himself he says he was separated. Do you see that? Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Separated. It's an interesting word. We might think Paul is speaking as a Pharisee here. The Pharisees were separated. As a matter of fact, the very word Pharisee means separated one. And uh, we might think that that's what he's saying. But Pharisees were separated from things. They lived this very ascetic lifestyle. They had all kinds of big list of things they weren't allowed to do. They're separated from. That's not what Paul said. Paul said he was separated to something. He was separated to the gospel of God. And so, in other words, he was describing his commitment and his dedication, his calling to the service for Christ. So he was a slave. He was an apostle. He was separated. That's the author. Let's talk for a minute about his subject. What's he writing about? Because he tells us some of that in here as well. What is his subject? Well... His primary subject is the gospel. And if you wanted to take the entire book of Romans and boil it down into one word, I think that would be the word. Gospel. Because that's what Paul is talking about throughout the entire things. We're going to see that word over and over in Romans because it is a key word. Perhaps it is the key thought in the letter. Paul wrote to the Romans and he wrote about the gospel. Brother Josh in his sermon last week read from 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul would say again to another church uh, some truth about the gospel. And he described what it is. He said, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas and then by the the twelve. Paul's going to talk about a lot of things in this letter. He's going to talk about things that are important to the Jews. He's going to talk about things that are important to Gentiles. He's going to talk about some things that really hit home to us, In our world today, in 21st century America, this is a very, very, very relevant letter. There are some things that are in our news that, uh, you know, you're going to see directly addressed here. But the main thing he's going to talk about is the gospel. Over it all, infused through it all, will be that theme. His purpose for writing. Jump down to verse 16 of chapter 1. Verse 16 of chapter 1, and if you mark in your Bibles, and I always encourage you to do that, you might want to underline this because this is the key verse of the book of Romans. Verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He says a couple of things here, and I'll just mention them. You can study them on your own. In verse 1, he says this is the gospel of God. We'll see that developed more 
It's not his words. It's God's words. And we see also there in verse 16 that it's the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the good news about a person. Not just the teaching, not just the thought. A person. Jesus Christ. John Stott said, The person and work of Christ are the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. If he is not who he said he was, and if he did not do what he said he had come to do, the foundation is undermined and the whole superstructure will collapse. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There is practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. I love that quote. Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. And that's what Paul's going to say. That's the theme of the book, the gospel. And so he's clear here. His purpose is to proclaim the gospel, the good news from God. And he's equally clear that that news is centered on a person, Jesus Christ. And as we go through the book, we're going to see that developed over and over again. Last thought. He's talked about him, the author. He's talked about the purpose. Let's notice what he has to say about the readership, his audience, Paul's readers. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, there's so much in those verses. Uh, we could spend a lot of time, but we're going to boil it down to just three things. Three things. Notice he said that his readers were called. Called. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this today, because we're going to spend a lot of time on it in future days. Uh, called. You also are the called of Jesus Christ. Did you get that? He's, he's talking to the Roman believers, but he's also talking to you and to me and to all Christians. We are called. Called. And notice that he's saying you're the called of Jesus Christ. He's not referring to being called to a task, but rather to a person. Some of the English translations, and you may be holding one that, that does it this way, it renders that called to belong to Jesus Christ. We're called to a relationship with our Savior. He expands that thought a little bit further then when he says we're called to be saints. A saint is simply one who's set apart to God. Every Christian is called to a life dedicated to Christ. And let me diverge for just a moment and make a, a point because every time that word saint comes up, we have to clarify. And we have to talk about it for a minute. You know, there is a sainthood that is bestowed by men and by ecclesiastical authorities, which is completely unbiblical. It's not right. It's not mentioned in the Bible. The Bible teaches that all who name the name of Christ, all of the saved, are given the designation of saints. Not just those who have done some particular miracle. Not just those who uh, church leadership has decided uh, we're going to bestow this on them like some kind of an honor. No, all in the Bible. The word saint is a synonym for Christian. It's a synonym for believer. And here the apostle says we're called to be saints. He says something else about his readers. Verse number 7, he says they are beloved of God. And you know, as I studied this this week, my mind just kept going to that one. My eyes kept gravitating to that particular verse. Beloved of God. Think about that. It's not possible to take even a cursory glance at the gospel without noticing that it starts right there. The love of God. We are beloved of God. He's saying to these Roman Christians, God loves you. Later in chapter 5 and verse number 8, he's going to say, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John said in John 3.16, God so loved the world. Do you get it? That means you. That means me. We are beloved of God. What a glorious, wonderful designation that is. 
I know at times problems of life can press in, can't they? I know at times we can feel very alone. I know at times our adversary, the devil, can make us wonder and make us doubt the reality of our God. But the truth is here and the truth is clear. You are beloved of God if you're a member of the family of God. So Paul reminded the Romans, all those who are the called of God are also beloved of God. And then there's one other thing I want us to notice here about the readership, and that's just simply that they were in Rome. Do you see anything interesting about that? They were in Rome. That's who he's writing to. Those in Rome. Might seem insignificant, but if you think about it for a minute, it's very interesting. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. Has Paul ever been to Rome? I see a few heads shaking. No. No, Paul's never been to Rome. Has Peter ever been to Rome? That one's harder. No, Peter has not been to Rome. At least not at this point. I don't know if Peter was ever in Rome. I think the evidence of that is scanty. But the fact is he certainly had not been here yet. You say, how do you know that? Well, I know that because if we go to the last chapter of the book of Romans, chapter 16, we see the Apostle Paul listing a great big long list of Christians in Rome. And Paul's, or Peter's not in it. He's, he's commending and talking about all these people who are in leadership positions in the church in Rome. It would have been kind of a slight, wouldn't it, to have left Peter off the list? So he wasn't there. There's even a greater evidence, though, than that, I think. And that's that Paul said in Romans chapter 15, he said, So have I made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. Paul's um, modus operandi was to go into a place where another apostle hadn't already been. He didn't want to build on another foundation. So Peter hadn't been there. Paul hadn't been there. No apostle had been there. Why are there Christians in Rome? It's an interesting question. And it really has a very simple answer, I think. The answer is in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, and we're out of time, so you don't have to turn there, but just think about it maybe this afternoon while you're sitting around your nice warm house watching the snowfall, you could look at Acts chapter 2. And you could notice that that was when Pentecost took place, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, the birth of the church. Holy Spirit came down and sat on the, 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 the heads of people like tongues of fire, and, and they spoke with other tongues. And Peter preached a great evangelistic sermon, and 3,000 people were saved on that day. And in Acts chapter 2, you see a long list of all the different places that people had come from. Uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia and all these places. But in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 10, you see this little phrase, visitors from Rome. Now think about that. It gives me goosebumps to think about it. Visitors from Rome just happened to be there on that particular day when this sermon was preached. And they heard Peter preach to 3,000 people. They watched 3,000 people turn to Christ, actually. They told others what they had seen and experienced when they turned back. And all of a sudden, we have a church in Rome. And we have people that are saved in Rome. Actually, we believe there was more than one church in Rome. We know that Aquila and Priscilla lived in Rome, according to Acts chapter 18 and verse number 2. Here their names are in Acts chapter six, or Romans chapter 16. They must have somehow carried it back to Rome with them and others. If you look at the list in Acts 16 and one. One day we'll get there, or Romans 16, I mean. We'll see the many there whom Paul had influenced for Christ and who were now somehow in Rome. And so I just think this is an amazing thing. I wonder how many times, uh, if you've considered how many times in the Bible people heard and took the news back. There's such a great message there, such a great thought there. And we read about it in the Christmas story. In Luke chapter 2, we read that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd heard and seen, 
which were just as they had been told. We read that the wise men did the same thing in Matthew chapter 2 and verse number 12. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. People hear the gospel. They take it back with them, and it spreads. When I first built my pond on my property, I always had this thought that I was going to stock that pond with fish. And I was preparing to do that, and I was out walking around the pond one day, and I'm looking, and there was fish in my pond. I thought, now, how is this possible? I just dug a hole in the ground. There's no way for fish to get to this thing, and it's full of fish. And, of course, the answer is because birds bring them in, and it happens. I thought that was a good illustration of what happened here in Rome. Christians were just coming in. They're hearing it. They're bringing it. And the gospel is spreading, and churches are being planted. I think the greatest example of this might be the maniac of Gadara. Mark chapter 5, and again, we're out of time, so you don't have to read this. Let me just read one, one little portion of it. The maniac of Gadara, you'll remember the story. He was demon-possessed. Jesus miraculously healed him of his demon possession. And after he uh, had been thus saved, he wanted to go with Jesus. And look at, look at what Jesus said. Uh, here, when, when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him, begged Jesus that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. And how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. And all marveled. The reason there were churches in Rome. The reason there were Christians in Rome. Is because Christians heard about it in Jerusalem. And no doubt other places. And carried that message back home. And told it. And shared it. And people were saved. And churches were born. I just think that's a wonderful thought. Well, can we apply any of this information? Does it mean anything to us in 21st century America? Uh, or was it just for 1st century Rome? Is there any application here? I think there is. I think about Paul's description of himself. And I want to apply it to my life. I hope you do too. Do I consider the title slave of Christ to be the most important thing? Do you? Do I consider myself one who is subject to the will and wholly at the disposal of another? Christ. Do you? I think about Paul's description of his reading, of his reason for writing, and I think there's application there. The gospel. Certainly one application ought to be, do we know the gospel? If it's so central, if it's so important that it's the whole theme of this greatest of books that he ever wrote, greatest of letters that he ever wrote, do we know it? Do you know it? Have you heard and understood that Jesus Christ died? That he was buried? That he rose again? That he lives forever for you? Do you understand the gospel? Have you accepted the gospel? That's certainly one application. And if you do know it, do you, like Paul, consider yourself separated to it? Central to your life. One other application I can think of is about his audience. Do you know that you were called by Jesus and that you were called to be saints? You can't know that. You can't believe that without it changing your life. You can't believe it without it affecting how you live. And finally, do you get it and really get it, even when it seems far away and hard to see, that you are the beloved of God? Think about that application if you think about nothing else. You are the beloved of God.